Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, folks. Well, welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. I am Adam Jones. And I'm Cameron Horine. And we are back with you today, still talking about weeds. It's still spring. Um, we still have agronomy on our minds. And uh, it's, it's hard to ignore uh, weed pressure that's out there in our fields this time of year and, and for essentially the foreseeable future here for the summertime. So we wanted to hit another podcast on, on weed control and, and on some of our driver weeds uh, in Missouri and in our MFA trade territory. So um, we've got our, a new director of agronomy and knows a lot about weeds. And so we kind of made a, um, made a good crossover here to, to make a good episode. To, to get him in here to, to talk about weeds, weed control, and uh, what's going on out there on the landscape these days. So, But also gives him a chance to introduce himself to you guys and yeah. you know, give you a time to get to know him a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So, Doug, you want to just give us a, a little background on, on yourself, just a, you know, kind of the 45-second? The yeah. Well, good morning, Adam and Cameron, and uh, thank you for this opportunity to kind of visit with you guys today. Um, yeah, my name is Doug Spondhorse and new the director of agronomy. I've been here for this is my fourth week now, so still. Oh, you're a hardened veteran at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so still still quite green. But um, I'm originally from the Washington, Missouri area, which is just uh, about an hour west of St. Louis. Uh, born and raised there. Um, went to Washington High School. Uh, went to East Central College for two years and then in 2009 I transferred to MU and I uh, got a crop management degree there in plant sciences and uh, started working for Kevin Bradley's weed science lab shortly thereafter as an undergraduate student worker and ended up staying there and and working on a master's degree and uh, in 2013 ended up uh, going to Purdue and and starting my PhD uh, at Missouri, I worked with uh, glyphosate-resistant water hemp and giant ragweed and really didn't get uh, uh, too far away from the pigweed species when I went to Purdue. worked with uh, Palmer amaranth as that was kind of becoming uh, a really problematic weed in, in, in that geography. And uh, in 2017, I accepted a job with uh, USDA ARS in uh, home of Louisiana, which is an hour southwest of New Orleans, and often get the comment of, I didn't know you could go any further south than New Orleans, and uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's true you can. Not sure so, I did either, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, we were about 30 miles from the Gulf of Mexico, from the way the crow flies, uh, and there I did uh, weed control research and sugarcane, so very different than uh, the Midwest. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's interesting and it's always yeah any anything outside of corn and soybean is is always interesting to to, to kind of kick around just because we don't get to kick it around very often so but cool well now i appreciate that appreciate that background doug for sure and I, and uh, i think it leads well in into what we want to talk about because you know it's i don't think it's an anomaly that that most uh agronomy folks at your level are typically born and bred out of weed science schools and and that's because of some of the issues that we've got out there on the landscape these days so you know you mentioned some um, research that you've done and and some work on water hemp and palmer and that's kind of obviously what we want to focus on but uh, as we look to kind of what are the driver weeds out there you know i think 
most folks, if you asked them, kind of pinned them down and asked them what's the main driver weed in your system, uh, they're either going to tell you water hemp or palmer. Is that, is that kind of true in pretty much all the geographies that you've been in? I mean, maybe other than the sugarcane system. Yeah, I mean, of course, in the Midwest, you know, uh, palmer and water hemp and mare's tail are, are quite problematic. But, um, you know, Missouri is a very diversified state. Um, you know, geograph, you know, geographically, and uh, you know, agriculturally as well. So, you know, we're we're well familiar with the with the row crop side of things, and and that in the northern part of the state as well as the boot heel, and and you know, again, water hemp and mare's tail and palmer are probably the the three drivers in in those areas. But you know, we can't really forget about the pastures, and uh, there's several different species that infest pastures that are quite problematic and and that you know look at your thistles your buck brush uh common ragweed locust trees and and you know multiflora rose as well so um but i think you know for today we we want to maybe focus more on the row crops just with that being said so yeah i agree but i think i think what you said doug is i think that's a great idea for you know a future podcast for us is to be able to focus in on those pasture weeds and be able to dive into those a little bit more, um, you know, so we can think about being able to control those and make sure we have a good understanding of them for those pasture guys too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cause it's a, it's a big thing and, and seems to, to, you know, we've had a few drought years, you know, I think folks have, you know, gray stuff a little harder in those situations than, and so we're seeing a lot of those, yep. those weeds kind of show up at this point. Um, but kind of transitioning back to the, to the water hemp and, and, mare's tail thing um what about those weeds make like makes them the problem that they are and and maybe like what have we done or not done in our crop systems to kind of create that problem for us you know because it's it's kind of been dropped in everybody's lap but kind of not because so i feel like there's probably some life history things with maybe some of those weeds and then there's also likely some past management that we've done landscape wide that has just basically led us into this tunnel yeah, you know that's a that's a really big question, Adam. Um, and to <laughs> I'm good you know, at that. Really, big, big questions, <laughs> no answers. <laughs> well, and, and to really you know point it on one thing is is kind of tough. But um, you know, overall, we've had a lot of adoption of uh, you know no-till pr- production, mm-hmm. which has been you know very beneficial from you know building organic matter, reducing soil erosion and stuff. But you know, Palmer and water hemp, these are really small seeded broadleaf weeds and so typically when we're not working the soil um, those small seeded weeds really really thrive in in shallow depths Um, and so in one way you know we've created an environment for these weeds to you know proliferate and it seems like no matter what what system or what you throw at um, a weed or, or what have you uh, it's always going to adapt to a situation, you know, several years ago or several, a couple decades ago, you know, back in the eighties, the common cockleburr was a really problematic weed and it, it was a large seeded, it is a large seeded broadleaf and, and even giant ragweed and that, but we, we've got a pretty good handle on, on those two species for the most part, but we've had a lot of, uh, adoption, uh, of reduced tillage systems mm-hmm. and, uh, We've kind of gotten spoiled as well from some pretty easy management um, systems. You know, post-emergent herbicides have uh, spoiled us greatly. 
um, and they're, they're very valuable tools. But uh, as you know, as, as you get comfortable and, um, you know, with the system, it, it can exploit the weaknesses. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. And it seems like even the hot tillage tools these days are all very shallow. You know, the high-speed discs and the... And those v, turbo you know, tills. Turbo tills, VT stuff. I mean, you're all... You yep. know, you're all not, you're doing is turning up that top inch, maybe two inches yep. at the most. So I'm yep. just kind of stirring it back up. And I mean... Really, you're just taking those small seeds and you're just returning them right back to where they want to be. Right, and I think you know, looking at those two species, they're you know, water hemp and palmer. They're they're two plants that really germinate at a real shallow seed depth. You know, that half inch to you know three quarter inch to right on top of the soil surface. So, you know, we're we're putting those seeds right where they need to be as far as being you know able to germinate um, ideally. And um, which, you know, then you create a, a soil seed bank of, of, of those individuals. Right. So talking about the soil seed bank, um, let's kind of think about what kind of time frame is both water, hemp, and palmer um, germing in the year. So winters, winter we need to be concerned about it, but also, um, you know, thinking about that, but also the seed bank itself and how long can some of these seeds survive within that seed bank? Yeah, um, so typically we see both these species really begin to germinate probably in the, in the late April time frame uh, on the calendar uh, when, you know, we're getting air temperatures of 65 to 75. I mean, next week it's going to be 80 degrees, they're talking, and mm -hmm. uh, just a couple of days ago we were down to 28 uh, <laughs> for the low. So, um, you know, it... it it's a summer annual weed. They, they typically germinate, you know, from April. <clears throat> and whenever I was at Purdue, we, we did a study there and we were looking at emergence uh, and we found Palmer and, you know, in the northern part of Indiana germinating all the way into October, uh, which is pretty concerning, um, especially with the, with the sh short reproductive life cycle that some of those plants can have. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not as concerned about water hemp and palmer you know emerging that late in the season because we're likely going to have a freeze yeah so i was just going to ask you do you know like how long i assume there's there's not much chance that super late germinated stuff would be able to become reproductive but like how long i mean it seems like it could be pretty short too yeah i mean to give you an exact date of you know reproductive yeah uh, ability it really depends on the environment you know we've seen plants that when they get stressed by cold weather or too much rainfall they uh they get stressed and and the only thing they know to do is to go reproductive yeah, and to seed produce on. seed and and you know even with uh um a small plant that might be you know three or four inches that might begin to put a seed head on it it may not produce a whole lot of seed but that's just that many more that can oh, sure. go back into the soil seed bank right. and um so yeah to kind of go back on your your initial question cameron um, again, we did some work. This was a, a study that we had a lot of different populations, if you will, and we, we put them in um, different locations, uh, different states. This was a, a USB project uh, several years ago. Um, and we planted, we put the seeds, you know, at the zero inch level right on top of the soil surface and we buried them. And we came back each year and monitored 
and counted, you know, all those those seeds that, you know, were viable. Mm-hmm. And even after, you know, I think it was three years, we still had four to five percent viable seed within those hundred or two hundred, however many seeds we put out there. And you know, three to four percent doesn't really seem like a whole lot, but when you when you're talking about a weed or a plant that conservatively can produce a hundred thousand seeds, and these are you know females, may that uh, Palmer and Waterhemp they have male and female plants, so the females you know conservatively produce a hundred thousand seeds. Four to five percent, you know, you're looking at four to five thousand plants after so a three to four year period. So right. this is you know the. There's no short-term fixes to these two. It's it requires it will require a long-term management strategy. You can't just be diligent for one season and get rid of it. No, absolutely not. So what's the main talking a little bit about seed production? What's their main dispersal then? I mean, are we are you typically just worried about you know that one field? I mean, I assume small seeded broadleaf not not necessarily going to be wind dispersed or could be I guess on a very small scale. But what's what's kind of the main way these seeds are moving around? Yeah, um, I know Kevin Bradley and his group at, at the University of Missouri, they've done some work um, looking at some migratory birds, and they found that, you know, the the migratory birds can consume these mm-hmm. pigweed seeds, and, well, as you know, they can travel hundreds sure. and even thousands of miles. And, you know, what goes in must come out, right? Yep. Yep. <laughs> and um, so it... it you know that that's one mechanism of course you know if you're buying and selling equipment from different areas and you're not sure of you know what their yep. weed history has been and if, if you've got some contamination but uh you know even even tornadoes and you know really strong winds you know you, you're yeah. talking about tornadoes that can pick up houses and transfer things miles away so it's yep. it's once you start thinking about it, there are several ways that these seeds have been able to, you know, move yeah. from location to location. Right. You brought up the equipment thing. That was that's something that most people don't kind of think about. But yeah, I mean, if you know you have a custom harvest crew or something like that 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 comes through or something, you know, thinking about you know not just your weed problem at that point, but the weed problem of the field the guy was in with that same machine, you know, right. the, the day before. Yeah, I was going to say the equipment piece. I mean, you know, when you're thinking, we talked about these plants germinating too. You know, a lot of times we're getting our early herbicides out and maybe our, you know, our post-herbicide, and that was maybe the mid-June time frame, but we may still have some of these water hemp that are still germin late July or whatever. They're coming up after these last herbicides. And yeah, they may stay under the canopy, but they may be, you know, six inches tall or something, and they're still going to produce um, seed possibly. And then when you bring that combine through, all you're going to do is end up possibly spreading even more. So... I mean, your equipment definitely helps spread out. Right. And, um, you know, I'm glad you kind of yeah, mentioned the equipment thing. And, and you know, our combines are excellent seed spreaders. But um, there's some technology out there um, where they're attaching a grinder mill, if mm-hmm. you will, yeah. to the back end of the combine. And those have had, uh, you know, really high success rates as far as, controlling crushing the seed um from the data i've seen it's it's not a hundred percent but again it's 98 99 percent which you know in, in any type of weed management uh strategy or program if you will a hundred percent is really difficult to achieve and i, and I don't really think that's a realistic outcome yeah. or you know but we do our best and um 
I believe that that's a really strong tool going into the future that we'll have available. It's, it's really common, especially in Australia, uh, you know, the weed seed destroyers, if you will. Um, and they've had some success in, in that in that geography with with managing resistant weeds. Interesting. So I'll ask this question because Adam's um, conservation guy, and he you know he believes in soil health and stuff. So just kind of just trains, me, just me. No, Adam. not just okay. you, Adam, but right. a lot of people. But um, <laughs> I, he likes to give me a hard time on our replicated plots because I like to have them tilled to make them a little easier for planting and stuff. But um, you know, we think about. Before we get into the chemical controls, we talk about herbicide resistance and that whole piece of it. Let's think about cultural controls, um, utilizing tillage pieces and stuff like that. And you talked about how we've transitioned, a lot of our t- geography has transitioned to no-till and you know we're kind of seeing where we are allowing for Palmer and water hemp to um, really succeed in those areas because they like that shallow ground and we're not working up and stuff. Obviously, I don't think anybody is coming out here and saying, hey, we need to bring out the old marble piles and to, you know, run those to bury all this deep seed in the ground. But what do we, what can we do culturally uh, with cultural practices like that um, to kind of help with water hemp and palmer? Yeah, I mean, one narrow row spacing is, is definitely helpful, um, you know, going from a 30 inch row to a 15 is uh you know, you're just covering up the, the soil, preventing that sunlight from getting down there, and then hopefully ha- having a canopy closure, you know, much sooner than a, a wider row spacing. But uh, crop rotation is another big thing that, you know, we need to really think about and, and consider. Uh, you know, several years of growing soybeans, it, uh, you know, your, your herbicide options are the, are the same, you yep. know, so you don't have mm-hmm. a lot of that, that mix-up of, of herbicide chemistries, if you will. But one of the things I'm seeing more and more of nowadays uh, as I you know, kind of travel around is cover crops and a cereal rye cover crop. And, and that's, again, that's some work that we, we also did whenever, whenever I was at Purdue and it was a, a multi-state effort looking at the effects of cover crop on pigweed emergence and, and how can that tool be utilized. And we've seen quite a bit of success with, with a cereal rye cover crop. Um, you know, oftentimes we think of those train wreck fields, um, and we're always trying to see what we can do for those. But, but from what the cover crop situation, we've seen there tends to be a greater effect of when we have a, a less dense weed population, if you will. Um, we, we really push that, that tool on those heavy infestations. And, and you know, growers might be reluctant to maybe continue to use them because they, they might think, well, I put this cover crop in and well, it didn't, didn't smother them all out. Well, yeah. if you're, if you're reducing the half the seed bank or ha- half the plants from coming up from, from that thick mat that it can create, um, it, it's a win in my book. Well, yeah, you just mentioned there is, there is no 100% control. Right. And, and to shoot for that is, is, you know, just, just not attainable. So uh, uh, yeah, anything that we can do from a management perspective like that. And I think it goes back to great points there. And, and it goes back to, you know, we've been no-tilling since the nineties in a lot of cases. And, and I'm sure there's some guy yelling at his speaker at this point, I've been no-tilling since 1980, you know, whatever. But uh, I think broadly since the, you know, since the nineties and um, it's just, 
it on itself is, is, is I don't, I don't believe the answer when it comes to for everything and in every system. And I think there's, there's more to it than that. And I think we're finding that out now as we look at, you know, cultural controls for weeds and, and cover crops and kind of the dynamic there. And, um, that's probably a whole nother episode too, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it probably is. <laughs> uh, but I think there's a lot of guys that have no-tilled since then that and have gotten into cover crops that will tell you that, you know, just straight no-till is probably not the answer. And it goes back to just like, you know, in, in pasture weed control, when you got bare soil and you got the sun hitting bare soil, you just, you know, there's really nothing that you can put on there that keeps you from having, like, you're going to have weeds. Um, you know, there, there is something there typically that's going to germinate. Right, and you know we're working in an annual cropping system, so yep. our problematic weeds are going to be annuals. Yep. In most cases, you know, whenever I was working in sugarcane, uh, our most problematic weeds were typically the perennials. You know, Bermuda grass, Johnson grass, yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. basic grass, if you will. So it, um, you know, the, the, those plants always adapt to to our practices, and so you know, sure. keep, keeping things off balance is, is key. Don't, yeah. don't get comfortable. So before we start talking about chemistry, I think it, it, would, it would help me out, honestly. Um, if we could talk a little bit about uh, water hemp versus Palmer and like kind of what differentiates the two and, and kind of where are they on the landscape. You know, I, I guess when I think of Palmer, I typically think of the boot heel, but I don't necessarily think it's always a southern thing. So you can probably shed some more light on exactly where those things are and, and what kind of determines which one of them comes out on top. Yeah, well, you know, water hemp, it, it is, <clears throat> excuse me, na- native to, you know, North America. It's native to Missouri. It's, it's pretty widespread throughout this area, mm-hmm. uh, I would say. Uh, and, and, you know, water hemp can also be found way up north in Indiana, Iowa, Illinois, and uh, Michigan as well. Now, Palmer, on the other hand, it is native of the southwestern U.S., so Arizona, New Mexico, um, South Texas, uh, as well as the Sonoran Desert region in, in Mexico. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a southern weed, typically, but you know, there's a lot of folks doing research on Palmer in Michigan and uh, you know, in those real coarse-textured soils. Right. So, you know, it... To pinpoint, say it's a, it's a problem only in a specific geography or a region is, is probably inaccurate. I think it's pretty, pretty widespread in, in in some areas. Now, I don't you know I don't want people to misinterpret what I'm saying as it's in every field and every county and, and that it's that's probably not true. Um, it's probably sporadic with respect to Palmer in, sure. in our area. Mm-hmm. But you know I think it's fair to say that water hemp and, and Marestail are pretty pretty widespread yeah for sure um as far as the you know id characteristics you know palmer typically has a a really long petiole so the the structure that okay i was gonna say (laughs) make sure you define this for for yeah i remember my dendrology class but uh but uh some people might not so just yeah tell us what that is yeah so the petiole is just the the structure that attaches to the stem of the plant to the part of the leaf and so with palmer if you were to pull that petiole off from the stem and uh, bend it in half where it 
attaches to the leaf. Typically that petiole length is equal to the length of the leaf. With water hemp, it's, it's about half that. So that's one of the characteristics that I use to distinguish the two. Um, another thing that I look at is if you're looking at the plant from above, looking, looking straight down on top of it, uh, Palmer typically looks like a rosette. So the leaves are arranged to capture as much sunlight as possible, which makes a lot of sense. You know, it's kind of a desert plant. Sure. Uh, water hemp is a little bit uh, more sparsely arranged if you're looking directly down from it. And uh, another characteristic of, of Palmer, and this isn't true for each population or each plant, you know, there's a lot of genetic diversity within them. And one of the common things I saw early on was uh, a chevron or a chevron white V-shaped pattern or stain mm -hmm. on the leaf. And what's interesting is, you know, over time, as, as, as I kind of looked and searched various fields, that was actually, interestingly, uh, a characteristic I saw less and less as time has gone on. And I, th and I think that because that was a characteristic that's really easy for people yeah. to observe. And so I think right. those folks that really got aggressive with trying to remove Palmer really uh, selected for that phenotype. I was just and, say selected, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I'm not saying it's not out there, you know, sure. it's, it's extinct by any means, but it's, it's one thing I kind of noticed. And, you know, kind of looking at the leaves as well, you know, water hemp is a much more narrower type leaf structure. It's, it's, it's they call it lanceolate, but uh, Palmer typically is much more wider, um, oval, oval type shape. Okay. And, and I asked you that to, to ask you this, how big of a deal is the individual idea? Like if I've got a field full of water hemp with some soybeans out there and I have four Palmer plants in the middle of it. Do I need to go out and pull those four Palmer plants? You know, I guess that's kind of my what I'm shooting at here. Is is one versus the other really that much of a bigger deal, or we're pretty much doing the same thing for either species? Yeah, as far as a weed management, you know, strategy and herbicide programs, there there's no difference between the two. Um, as far as growth rates go, uh, Palmer's a bit more aggressive in its growth rate okay. compared to water hemp. Water hemp can still grow quite rapidly. Um, as I say, water hemp's aggressive <laughs> as is. Yeah, yeah and, and you know, a, a field infested with either species is really going to reduce the yield. Oh, sure. That, yeah. The yield potential of that field. But, you know, if you were to compare them side by side, Palmer's a bit more, uh, it produces a lot more biomass uh, per growing degree day or per heat unit, if you will, okay. versus water hemp. But, if you have either one in your field, I would suggest spraying before you get to three sure. to four inches in height. Just, sure. <laughs> just because okay. you, you turn the corner and, and then you come back to and it's eight yeah. to 12 inches. Yeah. Right. So I know that Palmer and water hemp, they're not the same species, but they're in the same genus. Um, so they're in the same family of plants. Um, is there a concern for them being able to hybridize and... Um, uh, I guess make a super weed with lack yeah. of better term. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on the genomics of them, if you will. Um, I know Pat Trannell and, and some of those folks have done a lot more research on that. And, and some of the literature that I've looked at, um, you know, again, there's a lot of 
species in the amaranthus family, you know, smooth pigweed, red root pigweed, and um, spiny amaranth as well. We spiny, we see a lot in pasture stuff because mm -hmm. it tends to be, it comes in on hay, and I've, I've seen that around Missouri quite a bit. Yep. Yeah, and I think from what I remember, um, there has been some success with the crosses between spiny amaranth and palmer. Um, to my knowledge, you know, I don't really know with respect to water hemp and palmer if there's been hybridization between those two, but I have seen or have, I haven't seen, I've, I've read about water hemp and smooth pigweed being able to, to successfully hybridize. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like there's a chance, Cameron, so stop tilling up your agronomy plots. <laughs> I think that's a good transition into, uh, into kind of some of the chemistry options uh, for, for most of the crop rotation that we have kind of out there. Um, obviously, there are no silver bullets here, so, so kind of what's, what's the best systems approach to maybe, and, and maybe let me give you two scenarios here. Maybe one where you don't have um, a high weed pressure problem, um, and and you've done you've done a lot of the things. Uh, do, do you kind of keep that system moving forward? Do you continue to lead, look for different modes of action, different way to get different herbicides out there? And then maybe another scenario where where we do have a weed bank weed seed bank issue is you know what what kind of extra precautions would you take in that kind of scenario? Yeah, that's that's a good question, Adam. You know to. To answer that, I would say in both cases, we probably need to continue to use multiple modes of action, you know, switching them up because, the, you know, the, the moment that you kind of get relaxed a little bit or, hey, this year I'm going to maybe not add a, a group 15 to it and next thing you know, you got a couple that escape and, mm -hmm. and then as, you know, we talked about the amount of seed a single plant can produce is... Uh, is quite alarming so you know you can really kind of get into that defensive mode um, so but as far as you know those growers uh, those situations where you know we have a, a seed bank you know switching up different herbicides is important and overlapping residuals is is another thing but keep in mind that we need soil moisture we need rainfall to activate those and okay. fortunately with Palmer, from what I've seen, it's it's really dependent on rainfall for those seeds to germinate. And, you know, being a desert species, in the desert it doesn't rain a whole lot or very often. And when it does, those those seeds germinate. And so I think that's pretty common with, with Palmer, you know, in our geography as well. But um, as far as the herbicides go, you know, it's getting concerning more and more each day, I feel. Back in February, I was reading... I believe it was the progressive farmer or the delta farm press one of those mm -hmm. and they were talking about glufosinate resistant palmer in northeast arkansas mm -hmm. and looking at glufosinate there hasn't been a whole lot of reported cases of resistance to that herbicide i think as of yet as of yet mm -hmm. um and i think palmer was the second one to my knowledge, you know, behind Italian ryegrass. So, sure. you know, looking forward, we're, we're probably going to have a lot of growers spraying glufosinate or Liberty, you know, post-emergence. And so we, we, look, we look at our history, right? Um, we look what happened to Roundup. 
ready systems and with the resistance that has evolved from that. And so, you know, we really need to get a good handle on this. And, um, you know, again, herbicides aren't the only option. They're a, a really strong tool that we have uh, in crop to, to manage those weeds, you know, and with addition to tillage. I think what you just said, just to have a quick tangent on, you know, why we got into the situation we did with glyphosate. Um, it was working. It was doing great. It was fairly cheap, so we decided to cut the rate. Oh, it's still working. We decided to cut the rate. Oh, it's still working. Oh, shoot, now it's not working. Mm -hmm. Let's try to go back to the rate. We were, oh, it's still not working at this point. I think that's something that, you know, I think people are aware of, but we still need to just revisit and bring it up in our minds that with glufosinate, before we get into the same problems we did with glyphosate, we need to make sure we're using a full rate of herbicide. We're not cutting it back because we want to try to cut costs. Because if we keep trying to cut costs by cutting rates and stuff, we're going to end up having weeds that are resistant to everything. And then you're going to be losing money because you're not going to be a bit more profitable because you're going to be losing yield to those weeds. So making sure that we're using full rates of um, glufosinate, um, but also um, timing. You know, we haven't talked that much about how fast these plants grow. I mean, we did a little bit there, but you know, being diligent on looking at your fields and um, understanding like, hey, when you see water hemp or palmer starting to grow, I mean, these things in the heat of the summer are going to grow anywhere from one, one to maybe one and a half inches a day. And, you know, these labeled rates, especially glufosinate, is that four to six inches um, plant height is where we need to be spraying. Right. You know, if you've got, if you go to your field and it's at two inches, you know, you've got water hemp at two inches already then you probably need to be thinking, hey, I need to be spraying this field um, probably yesterday, to be honest. But, you know, yeah. you need to be getting into that field because here soon you're going to be over it and those weeds are going to be tall. And, I mean, when we think about Liberty, it's a contact herbicide. And so making sure you get really good coverage on it because I know I've seen in fields that we've done studies on and um, trials, you can smoke a water hemp plant with Liberty Think you've smoked it, but those growing there's maybe still a growing point down towards the bottom that still survives, and then it branches off from there, and it still produces seed. Right. And sometimes it'll actually produce more seed because you just made it mad, and it, you know you just you've made it more angry than you have actually killed it. Stressed yeah. it, just like what he was saying with the cold weather and stuff earlier. You know, when when they get stressed, they're yeah, you know they they go reproductive. Yeah. Right. So yeah, herbicide coverage is is important, and when you're looking at a plant, for example, like Palmer, and even water hemp, you know the amount of leaves that are on that plant that may not get covered because you're doing a, you know, a June application and canopy closures be you know started to begin, and um, so you you still have those leaves underneath mm -hmm. where you know you're trying to get optimal coverage, and that can be challenging. Yeah. You've already you already started into it, Doug, and I sh I should honestly be paying you for these transitions for me. But <laughs> I'll um, send you the I'm, bill afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> I promise I didn't prep you with all those. Um, but what you know, you mentioned we, we've mentioned all the you know the multiple way resistance. What makes these plants so susceptible to become resistant to just seems like everything we throw at them. Um, you know, for foxtail, for example, did not go crazy and become resistant to 14 different herbicides what about the water hemp's and the palmers of the world kind of made them go that route 
Well, I think, you know, we, we go back to the biology of the weed. You know, with water hemp, palmer, you have male and female plants. So you've got a lot of genetic diversity okay. um, floating around in the air. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, one thing I was thinking about too is, you know, if you have palmer in your field and your neighbor has palmer in their field and, and your palmer, for example, might be susceptible to glyphosate or whatever herbicide it might be, and your neighbor's is resistant, you think about that pollen that's coming across the fence row. That's not, you know, it doesn't stay within the fence like an animal. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's floating around in air. So, you know, you have all this pollen floating around, this just genetic potential. So that's that's one thing versus some other plants. Right. Um, and then again, you look at the seed number. You know, 100,000 seeds per plant, very conservative on that. Um, so just to sheer numbers, you know, there's, it's like winning the lottery, right? The more times, you know, the more tickets you buy, the greater your chances of, of winning. Um, so you've got a lot of opportunity there just with the sheer numbers stacked against you for yeah. at least one plant to evolve resistance. And then once that plant evolves resistance, then it's often what we've seen in the past. It just continues to expand. Sure. Yeah, I think those two aspects that you talked about is definitely prevalent. I mean, you know, an example of, you know, the cross-pollination piece is when you think about a cornfield, a corn plant, I mean, it has both the male and female parts on it, but they're separated. Um, whereas water hemp, they're two separate plants. But, I mean, if you were to plant, I mean, and we there's been studies that kind of show this for BT traits, if you took uh, corn that had a purple, you know, pur- it made purple seed color and you had yellow seed in the same field and you planted it, um, when you harvested those ears, you would have multi-variety um, ears because each one of those kernels would then been cross-pollinated from something. And so that's, you know, that's the same way it would look when you look at a water hemp plant is you're getting that cross-pollination. So every single one of those new seeds has a different um, set of chromosomes, has different traits that have built within it so and like you said with the sheer number of seeds you have the ability to create herbicide resistance extremely fast right yeah your what was the genetics class what was the little square called um mendel's okay yeah Gregory Mendel and his little pea plants. Yeah, when he yeah, was, he'd have gone crazy if he was doing it on water hemp. I know, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because he was just looking at two different traits. He was looking at a dominant recessive, but when you look at some of these things where there's six or seven traits combining yeah. it, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's a lot more complicated. <laughs> so as we kind of wind down a little bit, uh, what I kind of and and I love this question because nobody ever has the the, the absolute answer, so, which is why I like to always try to end on a question like this, but what, what kind of future technology do you think that is kind of out there or, or has the chance, I guess, is, is probably a better way to word it, you know, kind of what's out there that maybe has a chance to, to really help, um, help solidify a management system kind of against some of these small seeded broadleaf weeds. Yeah. I kind of briefly hit on that earlier. And in my opinion, probably, would be the weed seed destroyers, you know, okay. that that tool where they have it attached behind the combine. It's grinding up all the the material that comes out of the back end. That's probably um, the one I'm most optimistic about as far as, you know, helping us reduce the, 
the amount of seed we put back onto the soil. Sure. Um, that's that's probably one. You know, we've always had new AIs or modes of action kind of help solve or help control our problematic weeds that we have at this particular time. But right. you know, I'm I'm hoping that we'll have new chemistries come out. I'm I don't know how realistic that really is, just with the cost of development, um, right. especially with kind of the herbicide phobia, if you will. Um, people want all natural, and yeah, there's yeah. kind of that, that misunderstanding there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, it's been I a while believe, since we've had one. Yeah, you know, probably the, the, the newest mode of action is probably came out before us three were born here. <laughs> Correct. Um, <laughs> which... Which is unfortunate, but you know it's it's an economics game with the uh, with the herbicide developing you know the companies that sure. develop these and yeah, it seems like they they come out with something that you know some people cheer about and then other people throw mud on their face at the same time you know so it's it's a it's not all sunshine and rainbows even for a company that comes out with something that you think is great. I mean, look at. Mm-hmm. You know, look at what they've inherited from the lawsuit side of things with with glyphosate. You know, um, it, so what you think is a major advancement in act, which it is. I'm not saying it's not. Absolutely. However, uh, you know, <laughs> however, not everybody sees it that way. So I Correct. mean, they they got mud all over themselves just from uh, some of the glyphosate stuff. So Correct. yeah, and you know, glyphosate is a is a really nice compound. You know, as far as it's absolutely. Um, it's environmental safety sure. and handling and, 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 and yeah it's got a lot of characteristics that are desirable for you know a really good compound it has activity on weeds and um, very diverse for that and uh, just it's it's got a favorable profile yep so one thing I wanted to just kind of mention we talked about driver weeds I mean this was talking about driver weeds and we talked mostly about water hemp and palmer but you know, we we talked about the cultural practices. You mentioned cover, using utilizing cover crops to kind of help eliminate seed making stuff. And you brought up cereal rye, which I just wanted to kind of emphasize. One of the other driver weeds that we didn't talk about that you know is very resistant, and you mentioned it is Italian ryegrass. Mm-hmm. Um, it is right. it's very prolific. It's like water hemp and palmer. It's very resistant to a lot of things. And so on the cover crop piece, we need to make sure that. And I know that we've talked about it multiple times, mm-hmm. making sure that you're utilizing cereal ryegrass for your cover crop and C- not... Cereal rye. Yeah. Sorry, cereal rye. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Thank you for making sure. Winter rye. Cereal rye, winter rye. Right. Kind of the two... Making sure we're not using annual ryegrass, right. Italian ryegrass, that piece of it, because that is that would be a major driver weed. Um, sure. You know, from yeah. the cover crop aspect. Yeah, and you know, again, looking at the history in other in other parts of the world, especially Australia, where um, that one is a driver weed for sure. Yeah, yeah. I always look at that as kind of the grass. It's kind of the grass version of water hemp. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> but but I just you know thought we should at least bring that up. You know. Yeah. You know, it's talked about a lot, and you know, a lot of times when we're talking about cover crops, we say, oh, well, we planted rot. We planted rye, well, yeah. or we planted ryegrass. Okay, well, what do you mean by you planted? Yes. Which one did you actually plant? And, <laughs> right. You know, let's make sure yeah. we're clear on that. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think you know, I, yeah, great point, Cameron. I I do think we're we're getting to the point. Most folks are 
getting more comfortable with the cover crop species and kind of understanding if they purchase wheat or if they purchase cereal rye or triticale, whatever, um, they kind of know what they're getting at this, at this point. Um, there's still some folks out there that starting to dabble in it, you know, that may not know, but, um, but definitely some good expertise that, uh, our agronomy staff, I know, uh, push across. So, but well, folks, guys, any final thoughts? This was fun. I appreciate you coming in and doing this, Doug, for sure. It was a good discussion and I think it's a timely one, you know, with, uh, with talking about when we're going to have issues with these things. Yeah, I mean, just a, a couple closing thoughts. You know, start clean, stay clean is a term I think a lot of us have heard. Yep. Um, and that, that that's important. Uh, don't get comfortable. Uh, always adapt your, you know, your practices to to the weed that you have, and, and always keep them off balance. And also want to point you know point out a lot of fields look clean at 55 miles an hour. So, <laughs> you know, uh, like, wait, 55. I'm usually going faster than that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, MFA does offer, um, you know, with their precision team, the crop track um, where, you know, you can go out and scout their fields. And yep. I think it's a really valuable tool that, that we offer to, to their clientele. And uh, just also encourage folks to pick up a copy of the Agronomy Guide. It's, it's a tool that I use regularly uh, as trade names continuously change. You know, I'm always asking myself, what... What what's in that mixture? Oh, for sure. And uh, and okay, what what rate do I need to apply? And what's the what's the interval of of the next crop that I can plant, and so forth. So it, it's it's a real valuable tool, especially with some of these actives that are started come off register, and you know they're be, being able to be used by other companies and generics, generics. and they're able to put their own names on it. Premixes, understanding understanding those premixes, and you know what's the same, what's not the same. Yep. Um, yeah, it's definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Doug. This is super fun. I, I think, I think folks are going to get a lot out of this. Thanks to everybody out there listening. Be safe out there and we'll see you on the next episode. Yep. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com. <laughs>